I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caparo, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll react to the president putting phase two negotiations with China on ice and explore what's next in the economic relationship. Plus, we'll discuss Lighthizer's criticism of bilateral deals undermining the multilateral system. And we'll break down a recent court decision which struck down the administration's doubling of national security tariffs on Turkish steel. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys, and this is actually our 100th episode. We don't have a lot of fanfare for this episode, but I think it's a good internal victory. This is a disappointment. You know, theme music. Well, we'll we'll work that out when we get a larger production budget, (laughs) but... (laughs) At the moment, we'll have to make our own sound effects. Da 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 da! A hundred episodes. The next time we're all back in the office, we can do a toast. When the pandemic is all blown over and we're able to do this face to face in the future, sometime before episode two hundred, if we're lucky. Yeah, knock on wood. The trade world keeps on spinning. I want to start with a couple things that the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer and the President said last week about China. And if you put them together, they offer some interesting insight into how this administration has carried out its China trade policy over the past three and a half years. Lighthizer, the trade rep, last week, when asked about the end game with China, said, quote, I don't know what the end goal is. Right now, we need to stop an aggressive force. And then the president last Friday, when asked about phase two trade agreement with China, said, I don't think about it right now blamed them for the coronavirus spreading and kind of shot down any prospect of a phase two agreement. I mean, what do you guys make of this? Are these kind of like uh, stunning remarks coming from our chief trade negotiator and our president? Well, stunning is not the way I'd put it. Look, one of the things about Bob Lighthizer that we know well is he's a genuine professional. He's done these jobs for a long time. He's been USTR since the start of the administration. He was a deputy uh, cabinet officer before that, deputy USTR, uh, way back when. So I don't think this is by any means uh, a mistake on his part, but I would recognize that uh, the geopolitics of the U.S.-China relationship are very complicated at this point. There's a lot of moving parts, and this may just be an example of uh, Ambassador Lighthizer not wanting to get into the space of either the president or Secretary Pompeo uh, or Secretary Esper, for that matter. So there's there's a lot of moving parts on China at the moment, whether it's movement of people or what's going on in the South China Sea and uh, freedom of navigation. Uh, you, you name it, there, it's an issue. And it sounds to me like he was trying to avoid creating problems for some of his colleagues in the cabinet or creating problems for the president. Well, he's been very good on that. It's not rocket science to observe that the people in the government who cross the president don't last very long. And he's got a remarkable record of of lasting long. And part of it is by not crossing the president. I can't believe that he really didn't know uh, what the end goal is. I think he knows what the end goal is because the end goal was described in the Section 301 report that his own agency issued. I think what he meant was, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And there he's got a lot of company. I don't think anybody knows exactly how it's going to turn out. 
I, I think it certainly has not turned out so far uh, as they had anticipated when they launched this whole thing. And the president's comments, I think, are classic Trump and in, in keeping with what's going on. It's sort of a preemptive bail is, is what I would describe it as. A, I think he's figured out that the Chinese are not going to give him anything in phase two. And so therefore, rather than try and fail, which would hand the Democrats an issue in, in the election campaign, uh, he's not going to try and he's going to blame it on the Chinese and say, you know, nothing's going to happen on that because I'm mad at them uh, because of COVID. If there were no pandemic, he would come up with another reason not to deal with them. My thought for months had been that his preferred outcome would be another deal before the election that he could brag about and to do it close enough to the election that people wouldn't be able to figure out whether it was any good or not uh, before they voted. But that seems now to be unlikely, although there's a footnote here, it seems to be unlikely. And, you know, in, if it is unlikely, he's doing the obvious thing, which is to say, rather than make the effort, I'm going to not make the effort. I'm going to blame it on them and say it's all their fault. And that uh, once I'm reelected and they know I'm around for four more years, then I'll get a better deal. I mean, he said that before. He'll say it again. Uh, the footnote is, I think we talked about this before, I, I, and it's on my mind because I spoke this morning to a group in China, including a, a bunch of China AmCham people. And the inevitable question came up again, who do the Chinese want to win? And what uh, happened the last time, I asked them that question, the people doing business in China, and they all said the same thing. That was that the Chinese uh, thought that they wanted Trump to win uh, for two reasons. One, because they think they figured him out and know how to play him. Uh, that may or may not be true. You use your own judgment on about that. But also that they think that the damage he's done to our relationship with our friends and allies uh, is worse than the damage he's done to them. And so net, you know, they win. I thought that was fascinating. But the thing to keep in mind in, in this context today is if that's true, why don't they do him a favor in October? It's not October yet. So well, they no, may, you want to wait till the right well. time. <laughs> One favor is buy more stuff, you know, because that's what he cares about. And they're behind in, in terms of what they committed to do. So one thing to do would be to catch up. Another thing to do would be, you know, another agreement. I, it's inconceivable to me that a, another agreement would amount to much. But that doesn't mean that it wouldn't be something that he could wave around and say more commitments from the Chinese. Yeah, look, this is not all under the president's control. One of the things we've observed on a number of occasions is that there was a global effect of depressing demand across the board, thanks to the COVID-19 epidemic. So the low demand is, is hurting everybody. It's certainly low demand in China hurts their ability to make the purchases they've committed to make. And of course, we're not buying as many imports. We're not buying as much of anything as we were. So all that complicates the, the achievement of the phase one goals. But look, there's there's a bigger narrative. It looks to me like, at least leading up into the election, the president's narrative is China did it. It's all China's fault. And whatever it competing, is, everything's their right, fault. Whatever it is, that's right. And what the competing Democratic narrative is, it's Trump's fault. And so that's the, the narrative scheme. And I think the president will adhere to that to the extent that he can. Uh, and that seems to be consistent with all the statements. And we'll see which narrative is more uh, is more persuasive at the end. Let me get back to something, Scott, that you started off with, which is there are so many moving parts to the U.S.-China relationship, and you listed a bunch of them. 
And, you know, there were more sanctions this week issued by the U.S. into some pretty high-ranking Chinese official. There are rumors or reports that the U.S. is considering a travel ban on Communist Party members, which would be an extremely sweeping move. So, you know, my question is, if there's zero momentum for a phase two agreement, and there are all of these other issues that make it difficult for each side to come to terms on basically anything, where does that leave the Trump administration for its potential second term? And where where does that leave a, a Biden administration? I mean, what does their China policy look like when there's just zero momentum? Well, look, part of the uh, effect of no momentum is there's not a decision to take. You, you don't have to decide anything on phase two right at the moment, okay? Even what's in it. So the, the process is where it is. And because of the lack of momentum, we even have questions on whether the phase one agreements can and will be met. Of course, that time period for delivering those commitments extends well beyond the election. It was a two-year deal. And so I, I just think nobody's under pressure to do anything right at the moment, which looks like we get the result we're getting. Well, that's true at the moment. But if Biden wins, this is going to hit him in the face on January 20th, because the, the question that, that he's probably not going to answer between now and the election is, what are you going to do about the tariffs? Yeah. Because you can be pretty certain that Trump's not going to get rid of them before January 20th. So on January 20th, it becomes an operational question. If he wins, what is he going to do about the tariffs? And I don't think they have an answer to that right now, but they're going to have to deal with it. Uh, I think the answer will be, uh, we need to have a discussion with the Chinese. And, uh, you know, the, we leave them in place till we have that uh, discussion. Uh, well, yes. I mean, it, it, this goes back to what, what Scott said. The election narrative for the Democrats is it's all Trump's fault. But if you dig behind that, they'll say, we've been saying for a long time, which is right diagnosis, wrong prescription, that the current president has figured out what the problem is, but his policies have failed to address it uh, because they're the wrong policies and because he's inept. Uh, that's the Democratic message. So Biden comes in and he's going to say, the Chinese are still doing the same things that we don't like. Uh, and they're still bad things. And I, now I'm going to do a better job of uh, tackling those bad things. And he's going to have to have a strategy. So far, the only element of the strategy has been we need a coalition, which is a good element. Uh, I think everybody agrees with that. So step one is to build that, you know, and talk to our allies, mm -hmm. build a united front. But sooner or later, he's got to go back to the Chinese and have direct talks and he's going to be under enormous pressure to do so from all the people that are suffering by the, because of the tariffs. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I personally doubt that they'll put out a very detailed plan for how to deal with the tariffs and how to deal with the trade war because it's easier to just punch up on Trump than it is to offer your own solution and open yourself up to criticism. That presumes there's a commentator or a reporter in Washington who's, uh, who's got the sense to ask that question. We'll see if one exists. Let's turn to another another statement that Lighthizer made, same event last week, that gets to a bigger picture question, I think, about the trading system as a whole. And this kind of goes back to, you can trace it back to Lighthizer's philosophy, you know, bilateral deals versus multilateral deals, but I think he's put a kind of a newer or a finer point on it. He said, basically, that the proliferation of bilateral free trade agreements is one of the biggest challenges to the multilateral trading system. And he criticized countries for aggressively pursuing bilateral deals that lock in their own standards and economic preferences, 
while at the same time claiming to be champions of the multilateral system. I mean, is his worldview or is his approach to this issue one that's logical to you guys? And I mean, is he right to say that bilateral deals run counter to the goals of multilateralism? Well, look, I think this is a fairly sophisticated critique of U.S. trade policy in the past, but it's also a critique of globalization. And if, let me step back for just a second, because the context is important. We don't notice it here in the United States so much because roughly, you know, over two thirds of U.S. trade happens at MFN rates. In some cases, MFN zero. But most of our imports and exports are not covered by a preference agreement. The Mexico and Canada being the two big trading partners, USMCA is a preferential agreement. But the other 18 preferential partners are relatively small in the grand scheme of U.S. trade, both imports and exports. So all our trade with China, all our trade with Japan, all our trade with Europe happen at MFN rates. That is unusual in the world today. The second thing that's unusual is that in the United States, a bilateral free trade agreement is amazingly comprehensive. I mean, it includes everything, goods, services, investment, the whole nine yards, and has a lot of extensive disciplines. Those two things are not true for many countries in the world. First, most trade in, say, Southeast Asia or within Europe happens at preferential rates. In the case of Europe, zero because of the single market. All right. In the case of Southeast Asia and South Asia, mostly zero because of the 200 or so FTAs. So that is the system that we don't recognize in the U.S. that is the reality for trade elsewhere. And importantly, those bilateral deals made uh, elsewhere, including many of Europe's bilateral trade agreements, are not all that comprehensive. Uh, most of the ones in South Asia are frankly just on industrial goods. Think of them as rules for production. And they were the rules for production that built global supply networks, okay, which is important and, and good for the economy and good for the people who did it. But they weren't comprehensive in nature. What that did, in effect, is minimize the importance of MFN for those markets. And since multilateral negotiations take place at MFN rates, there's no longer an incentive for people to negotiate. So I think the critique is actually quite sophisticated. It's what's happened to the trading system. It's the effect of globalization and the way that was applied through somewhat, well, non-comprehensive industrial goods only bilateral FTAs that got production freed up in, in terms of trade and intermediates, but didn't do much for the overall trading system and didn't do much for the United States. That's fascinating. I mean, I agree with Scott said, but I have to say, I don't think that's what Bob had in mind. If you take his comments and put them in, in his context, it was really an attack on the EU and on European trade policy for pursuing. And it was, he had a biblical reference, which just fascinated me because you don't get many biblical references in the Trump administration. But he said that the, the Europeans were like the Pharisees, namely saying one thing and doing another thing. Uh, by which he meant that they talk multilateralism, but they pursue bilateralism. And his view was you it, it, one or the other. You can't do both, which I think is wrong, but that's his view. But, I mean, there's several things lurking behind that beyond what I think Scott was talking about. One is that I think he's right, that uh, that the, Europe, the Europeans are... I don't know what the adjective for Pharisee is. They are Pharisee-like in uh, saying one thing and doing another, and they are the masters of pursuing bilateral agreements. What he didn't say directly, but I think is on his mind, is that a lot of those agreements have been criticized because they're with developing countries, 
And they tend to, I guess the polite way to put it is not to be balanced agreements or not to be agreements that are designed to, to uh, benefit the developing country, even though they're sold that way. There are agreements that are basically, uh, we'll let your raw materials in uh, to Europe if you'll you know, let our manufactured goods into your countries. I mean, they're proto-colonial deals uh, is, the, is the criticism that's been made of them. And that I think that is one reason why he is critical of the Europeans, uh, I think, for hypocrisy and other things. Although, I mean, the irony of, of all of that is that I think he would have the United States do pretty much the same thing. Uh, and when we start the negotiations with Kenya, we'll find out if that's true or not. But the interesting question is really more what, what Scott was saying, and you know, which model is more realistic in today's environment. And there, I, I'm in the group that, that thinks that, that all these little agreements are actually stepping stones to broader multilateral agreements. I don't think they're a deviation. They do create short-term distortions, but I, I could still believe that in the long run, if you're well-motivated and if you've got good WTO leadership, you stitch them together uh, at the end to produce a much more multilateral approach. I would have the same hope that Bill aspires to, that this would lead to something that uh, liberalization with your neighbors would lead to broader liberalization. But I worry about the incentives. Let's take as an example, Turkey. Turkey is a reasonably sophisticated and partially industrialized economy. They have a partnership agreement with the European Union. Uh, they also have relatively high MFN tariffs. The partnership agreement actually winds up creating a lot of industrial jobs in Turkey. So think about, you know, small appliances, electronic equipment, those kinds of things. The relationship Turkey has with Europe is like Mexico's relationship with the United States. They are the relatively lower cost neighbor who provides assembly services and those kinds of things for certain components that would otherwise be made in Asia. All right. Uh, so if you, a lot of, a lot of cars are assembled in Turkey, a lot of uh, appliances are assembled in Turkey, uh, same, uh, and, and exported to the European Union. Now, that's good for Turkey and, and has been good for European consumers as well. So I don't, I don't doubt the importance of that. But what it does is reduces Turkey's incentives to make concessions at the WTO on an MFN basis because the net benefit to them from, from broader opening has to be offset with the competitive pressures that their industries would face from the reciprocal demands to open other sectors. So for me, it's it's a matter of practically the incentives don't get you to the broader opening we'd all hope for. And you think they figured that out? Well, I think they're behaving that way. I, mean, I, think, I think that's the reason the Doha round went nowhere. They couldn't find a starting point for industrial goods that was satisfactory to everybody. And, and one of the complexities of finding that starting point was the huge differential between preferential tariff rates and, and MFN rates for countries who had plugged into supply networks. So we'll see. Maybe it'll work out. But it goes into a, a sort of a broader uh, range of, of degradation of MFN as an important thing to negotiate for. And it's one of the reasons the WTO has a tough time getting started on much of anything. In a way, that's sad, though, because I think we both comment from time to time, one of the reasons this is happening, it's sort of a loop. One of the reasons this is happening is because multilateral negotiations are going nowhere and right. countries want to do something. So, you know, they do these little things. But the consequence of little things, as Scott has pointed out, is to make it even more difficult to get a multilateral agreement going. So you get this sort of endless failure loop. It's a vicious cycle, yeah, as they say. 
it's interesting too because at the the same event, Lighthizer again called for a reset on global tariff rates through the WTO, which maybe would help remove some of the differentiation that's occurred between MFN and preferential rates. But I think that process at the WTO would be a total headache, and I, I have very little faith that it would result in a meaningful agreement rather quickly. But Scott, I'm glad you brought up Turkey because that's where I want to go next. The Trump administration was handed a loss by the U.S. Court of International Trade this week after the court found that the administration's decision to double the 232 tariffs on Turkish steel was unlawful because it took place after the statutory deadline in the law uh, for when the administration is allowed to take action based on the 232 investigation. And it singled out importers of Turkish steel, which is a violation of equal protection. I mean, what do you guys make of this of this case? Is it just kind of a one-off narrow ruling or are there broader implications here? I think it's an illustration of exactly what the Supreme Court said indirectly on, on some of their non-trade related rulings in the last few weeks, which is essentially these guys are terrible at administrative law and regulation. You know, the U.S. is a nation of law. And it's a nation of administrative procedures and regulations that are based in law. And if you want to do something, you have to follow the rules. Time after time after time, the administration has tried to do things by uh, shortcuts and ignoring the rules, ignoring uh, comment and, and consultation requirements, you know, and ignoring all these things that are built into our laws to make sure that everybody has a chance to participate and to comment, and, and things follow according to a, a pattern. And this was another example of that. The law was clear that the president gets to make this decision, but he has to make it within a defined period of time. And in this particular case, he did make it within a defined period of time, but then he came back months later and made a different decision. And the court's decision was, was clear. So under the law, you can't do that. You know, and they pointed out that what you can do in this case is you can go back to the Commerce Department and ask them to conduct another investigation and make another recommendation to the president. And then the president could have done exactly what he did. But he can't piggyback because the law doesn't give him room for that. So, I mean, it's another illustration of sort of unforced error, if you will. I mean, they could have done this right. They could have done this in a way that would not have raised this issue. And they just didn't bother. And it's nothing new. It's not like Congress just passed a law to prevent this. The Administrative Procedures Act has been in place, I think, since 1946. So, it, look, this is the way our governments should operate. I think they did violate the equal protection standards here, and uh, they certainly violated the procedural rules pretty pretty substantially. So we'll see if that changes their operation. Uh, as Bill points out, it's basically the same reasoning that the court, the Supreme Court came to with the uh, deferred access for uh, for childhood arrivals, the DACA program. Yeah, which they said they did not follow. The, they did, they, basically, they didn't follow their own rules. And, right. uh, you know, if this had happened once, it's a one-off thing. But this has happened so many times over four years that there's a pattern here. And I think it, it, frankly, my view is it sort of starts with the president. I mean, the president's whole career in real estate was trying to get around the rules. And what he's doing now is ignoring the rules. And, we you know, fortunately, we have a judicial system that catches him on that. And, you know, the, the irony of it is that he can go back and get what he wants. He just has to do it the right way. Yeah, procedural safeguards actually benefit us all at the end of the day. It does slow things down, but sometimes slowing things down is 
is wise in terms of protecting uh, individual liberty and and protecting uh, the interests of uh, other citizens. I'm going to stick to procedural safeguards here and rules and call it because we're supposed to keep it under 30 minutes and that's what we're running up on right now. So for our benefit and the benefit of our listeners, I will be following uh, the rules that have been set out by our production crew. Thanks to all our listeners who've been listening to us since episode one and even those who've arrived late. We do appreciate your support and your continued uh, perseverance with us in this. And here's to another hundred. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.